Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we mark the opening of season four of the Compliance in Context podcast and the first Lessons from the Front Lines episode we've done since May of last year. We've talked about some of these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Front Lines series focuses on real-life, tough-to-tackle subjects that other industry pros and regulators have faced on the front lines of our industry. Think of it like a fireside chat. Better yet, think of this as your opportunity to sit down with an industry expert at your favorite winter cabin, avoiding that cold winter chill with a warm drink in hand, and to just start talking about some of the most critical issues affecting the investment management industry today. But before we get into today's Lessons from the Front Lines topic, we'd also like to preview what's ahead in Season 4 for the podcast. 2022 was marked as a year of change and uncertainty in the investment management space. From the barrage of new rulemaking from the SEC and changes in leadership across the regulatory landscape to the complete upheaval of the cryptocurrency arena and the multiple crypto winters, there was a continued focus on private funds, and near the the end of the year, a message-sending shot across the bow enforcement action in the books and records space. Coming up in Season 4 of the Compliance and Context Podcast, we look to tackle many of these referenced items and many more, including issues around valuation, the 2023 examination priorities from both FINRA and the SEC, doing a deeper dive on contemporary topics like ESG and DeFi, and finally, we'll revisit many of the marketing rule challenges discussed during our Masterclass miniseries and the proposed rules on private funds. But we begin Season 4 by reviewing what is always a hot topic in compliance. And as I've said before, while I fully recognize that the terms hot and compliance are probably rarely used in the same sentence, I imagine you are here because you feel the same way I do about compliance and you are my people. As we look ahead to 2023, many of our listeners may be wondering, is this the year when the SEC finally punches their ticket and does an examination of the firm's compliance program? That in mind, we thought this was the perfect time to bring in an expert in this space and a former SEC alum herself, Ms. Rana Esmaili, to review a number of the items firms should be focused on as they look to prepare for an examination from the staff. I hope you enjoy the show. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think no matter what time of year it is, it's always going to be something relevant and interesting to many of our listeners to this podcast, specifically what's happening on the SEC examination front. And look, I'm sure it's clear to everybody listening now, right? There's been no shortage of things to concern yourself with over the past 12 months uh, throughout 2022 and and new rule proposals, old uh, rules that had passed becoming effective and compliance dates and other stuff like that. But I certainly think that when it comes to the examination front, this is always a topic that is just super relevant for so many of our listeners. And so today, Today, I am incredibly pleased to be joined by Rana Esmaili, who's a partner at Sidley Austin's office in Washington, D.C., and a member of the firm's global securities enforcement and regulatory practice. 
Rana joined Sidley from the SEC Enforcement Division specifically, where she served as an assistant director of the asset management unit uh, within the Division of Enforcement. And her practice focuses on representing investment advisors, private fund managers, and other asset managers in regulatory and government investigations and providing compliance advice and counseling to those clients. And given her experience at the SEC, given uh, I'm sure many of the experiences she's had over her wonderful career, I can't wait to, to hear from her what's happening uh, in the examination space now and what advisors and other regulated entities can do to better prepare for those exams. So Rana, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and you know, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Patrick. So as we kick things off, I think always good to start a bit high level, right? And so I think we've certainly heard of different types of sweep exams going on, different types of other things happening in the space. But just generally speaking, Rana, what, what, what are some of the things that you are seeing out in the examination space right now? Yeah, we, we are seeing, Patrick, a number of recent trends in SEC examinations. So as your audience will probably uh, remember during the pandemic, the SEC examination program went almost completely remote and notwithstanding the return to office by most of us and our clients, exams is continuing to conduct examinations remotely by email, written correspondence, and by video conferences. And that, of course, is probably driven by the fact that the SEC has not yet itself mandated a return to office. We're also seeing a change in terms of the key time periods and scope of the examinations. First, we're seeing more new, new registrant examinations for advisors that have been registered for less than a year and even in some cases less than six months. And that is a trend that we are seeing across asset classes. Mm -hmm. um, we are also seeing that examination periods, periods may extend for more than 24 months. So that's the relevant period for the exam for which registrants will be producing documents, for example. And that is longer than the relevant periods that we've seen in the past. And the initial request list seems to be expanding. For instance, we're seeing initial request lists for new registrant examinations that will typically include 30 to 35 separate requests and some of those with multiple subparts. So really more than the 30 to 35 number. And that is just more than we have seen in the past. Mm -hmm. And then I think finally, something that we are seeing is instances where SEC personnel from other divisions, specifically divisions of investment management or trading in markets, are participating in calls and interviews with registrants. That's interesting. I mean, you said a couple of different things in there that I think really spark uh, a different uh, uh, you know areas of conversation. I, I certainly think it's interesting that that the thirty to thirty five separate request items for new registrants. Yeah, that, that's certainly longer than I think I've seen in the past, and that's also interesting about the division of IM and trading and markets being on some of those calls. You know, guessing a lot of that is is probably education, but. You know, it's interesting. Another thing that I know I've gotten some kind of anecdotal feedback with a couple of recent examinations that we've helped support is, you know, around the idea of of you know disclosures and obviously look having good disclosures is always uh, a good good practice but are you seeing some of that as well like are you seeing uh, a focus again on disclosures that um, advisors and other folks are using and and like what what are some of the key areas where you're seeing that uh, focus around disclosures play out in some of the exams you you've seen 
Yeah, right. Listen, disclosure issues crop up everywhere in SEC land. So maybe I think, you know, maybe we talk about it in the context of disclosure related issues on hot topic issues, um, you know, kind of current current issues that the SEC is particularly focused on. One of those areas is in digital assets, right? That is a hot button issue right now, I think particularly with the recent collapse of FTX. You know, SEC examiners want to know what firms are saying about things like custody and safeguarding of digital assets, and they want to know whether those statements are accurate. They're also focused on advisors' disclosures about digital asset activities and whether the advisors or you know firms consider those assets to be securities. For listeners with the I guess, particularized interest in digital assets. I will note that in February of 2021, the Division of Examinations put out a risk alert describing areas of focus for future examinations based on observations from prior examinations of investment advisors, broker dealers, and transfer agents in the digital asset space. So not surprisingly, that risk alert enumerated areas of focus that included things like whether the registrant classifies digital assets as securities and the advisor or firm's due diligence, risk management, and custody practices and procedures. For broker-dealers, the focus included things along the lines of safekeeping of funds and operations, registration requirements, anti-money laundering procedures, controls and documentation, as well as due diligence reviews in connection with offerings. Another hot topic where disclosure is key is ESG. And maybe taking a quick moment for anybody that has been, I guess, living under a rock for the last few years (laughs) and don't know what ESG means. um, Yeah, no, that'd be great. (laughs) We're talking about environmental, social, and governance investing. So ESG. The SEC has been scrutinizing ESG investing out of a concern for greenwashing. And that term greenwashing is, you know, basically the practice of making investments look more E, S, or G friendly than they really might be. The SEC Division of Examinations conducted an exam sweep of private fund uh, advisors related to ESG investing in the spring and summer of 2021. And since then, they have continued to conduct one-off ESG examinations of investment advisors. And, you know, in those exams, the SEC is asking, you know, how firms incorporate specific ESG factors into their investment process. They are asking what specific disclosures firms have made around things like ESG scoring, ESG service provider due diligence, GHG emissions, compliance or internal audit evaluations, and various topics around proxy voting. So, boiling this down a bit, you know, I think it it, it makes sense to just understand what it is that the SEC is really trying to assess. It's really trying to assess a firm's disclosures against actual practices to identify potential greenwashing. But they're also trying to evaluate the adequacy of ESG compliance procedures. And just on a quick side note, the SEC recently brought an enforcement action against a registered fund manager for ESG violations that I think perfectly describes or or explains why firms need to focus on compliance related to ESG. In that case, the SEC charged the advisor and was an advisor to two ESG mutual funds in a separately managed account. The SEC charged the advisor 
for failing to have written policies and procedures for ESG research for some period of time. And then subsequently, when they had those policies and procedures, failing to follow them consistently. For example, the policies and procedures said that the advisor would use a proprietary ESG questionnaire and a materiality matrix in researching products for inclusion in the, you know, in the investment portfolio. And that's not exactly what the firm was doing. According to the SEC, they were relying on previously created questionnaires and research that was often conducted in a different manner than disclosed, uh, among other things. And that is a case where the SEC charged the advisor with a standalone compliance rule violation and assessed a $4 million penalty. So that's uh, maybe a long way of saying that compliance failures alone can really carry serious consequences. So when the SEC is focused on ESG compliance policies and procedures, it's not just an academic exercise. It can carry really mm-hmm. significant consequences. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. I mean, um, you know, certainly the the ESG topic area, as we kind of alluded to, right? It feels like you can't go a week without seeing a major headline related to it. But, you know, ultimately, a lot of it boils down to that old adage of, you know, say what you do and do what you say. And and if firms can, again, do a good job of adequately kind of describing what their investment processes and other stuff are going to be like, and then also, like you kind of indicated too, what their internal policies and procedures are going to be in order to make sure that they've adequately addressed any of those, uh, uh, you know, specific areas, they, they should be in good shape. You know, another area that at least, you know, again, kind of anecdotally, I've gotten a little bit of feedback that the, the SEC is taking a little bit harder to look at is in the area of cyber and specifically kind of cybersecurity and information security broadly. I even, you know, remember there, there's been at different times sweep exams related to kind of these topic areas, especially during the, the pandemic when certainly be, uh, uh, that, that topic area, even more than it already was, if that's possible, became uh, even more to the forefront in those areas of kind of cybersecurity and information security. Where do you see exam teams kind of focusing their efforts there? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This is this is very much a continued area of focus for the SEC examination program. So where we have seen the SEC focusing during cyber exams relate to firms' policies and procedures addressing client or customer information protection, as well as those policies and procedures related to preventing unauthorized access to client or customer accounts. Or information. And, and, you know, more recently in cyber exams, this staff has included more requests concerning things like governance and supervision, incident response documentation and policies and procedures, vendor due diligence and risk management, and supply chain risk assessment and controls. We have seen instances and cases where exams or inquiries appear to have arisen due to publicity around breaches applicable to the firm. The SEC seems to be reading the news and following breaches and using that as leads. And of course, as your listeners may know, the SEC has proposed new cybersecurity rules for investment advisors that I think will alter the regulatory landscape if finalized. 
But those are still in the post-comment period. So perhaps, Patrick, that's a better topic for you to cover in episode one of season five of this podcast next year. <laughs> you, you, you may be right there, depending on you know what, what happens over the course of 2023. Uh, that might be a good call. But no, I... You know, I, I think we've certainly seen a lot of the same items that you kind of bring up on the, the cyber security front. And uh, to your point about the cyber rules in particular, we actually just a couple episodes ago, for those uh, that are listening to this podcast and are interested, we did an episode uh, with uh, Craig Watanabe and uh, and Amber Allen came on and, and talked about those new cyber rules under, I think, 20649. But um, yeah, you know, you, you mentioned headlines and, uh, and the fact that the SEC may be paying a bit of attention there. I can definitely t- uh, tell you that one headline that grabbed everybody's attention over this past uh, fall was uh, the one uh, regarding an SEC enforcement action regarding off-channel communications. And, you know, I certainly think that the SEC in, in um, kind of pushing that action through was certainly sending a message out to the industry and, and focusing on off-channel communications. And, you know, I, I would, as someone who obviously used to work uh, in the enforcement space, and um, I'm, I'm certain had to deal with kind of similar issues um, in this area, I would just love your feedback. One on kind of, you know, some of the specific aspects about uh, those cases that were brought last fall and maybe, you know, some, what do you think came up during exam, like based on those cases, what do you think uh, the SEC will be focusing on when they do examinations and the types of things that they'll be looking at? Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. This is a a hot topic. There's lots of buzz and concern around off-channel communications these days, Patrick. Listen, for level setting, you know, what are we talking about? The SEC is focused here on whether registrants are maintaining and preserving employees' business-related communications that may occur outside of authorized channels. So that can be on, you know, individuals' personal devices, through text messaging or other messaging apps, or even on you know employees' personal email accounts, you know channels that are not um, captured and ingested by the firm, such that they are part of the firm's books and records, and that is what we have come to refer to as off-channel communications. The SEC has really expressed two concerns. So, so I guess the question is, why does this matter? And why does the SEC care? And they've expressed two concerns with the use of off-channel communications. And, and the first is just what I said. It's about books and records. It's about good record-keeping practices. The SEC statutes pertaining to broker-dealers and investment advisors have books and records obligations. And the SEC views those that good hygiene with respect to record keeping as being essential to investor protection, market integrity, and market oversight. And so by way of example, you know, a, a firm that has complete and accurate books and records allow the SEC to conduct the very examinations that are the topic of today's podcast. And, you know, the inverse is true. The SEC would say that incomplete um, or inaccurate books and records can impede that oversight function. The SEC is also concerned and has stated a concern about document productions during the course of examinations. The SEC has stated that the failure by firms and registrants to retain 
books and records and off-channel communications has caused delay and obstructed investigations where firms were expected to produce communications that were responsive but that were not retained. Now, I'll note that the SEC is primarily uh, addressing this issue through enforcement investigations and has to date leveled over a billion dollars in fines against 17 different firms, so not insignificant sums. But I think relevant to this podcast and this discussion, the SEC is also asking about off-channel communications during the course of examinations. And your listeners should probably know, if they don't already, that examinations themselves can result in referrals to enforcement for investigation. So, you know, in terms of the uh, the examinations, we have seen the examiner's initial request list include, not always, but in a number of exams now, um, a question about what steps the firms have taken to monitor, review, and then retain um, electronic communications related to the firm's business. And they specifically called out text messaging um, as, as part of that request. And the request also asks about the advisor's practices policies and procedures related to off-channel communication. So they care about the procedures as well, not just the actual practices. We have been seeing examiners probe these topics not just through written requests, but also during the course of interviews with individual employees. Interesting. One, thank you for all of that additional context, though. It, it, It does raise something in my mind, though, and I'd love to kind of follow up on that because you mentioned the the policies and procedures and kind of specifically being one of the items that they're obviously going to dig into i guess what you know what what can firms do now then like for all the folks that are listening to this podcast (laughs) and i know just based on a couple compliance conferences uh over the course of the fall i mean this topic is burning right now right across a lot of different firms and trying to figure out how they want to handle it what would you say to those firms what what can they do to help enhance their electronic communications policies and procedures and just generally their their practices in anticipation of an upcoming exam yeah you know every firm's approach is going to have to be really calibrated to their own businesses and risk. But but having said that, there are certainly concrete steps that firms can take to to think about those risks and try to address them um, again consistent with their own their own business. For example, firms can undertake an effort to to review their existing compliance policies and procedures to determine what is allowed and what's prohibited and then compare that against current known practices. So let's, Patrick, say hypothetically that a firm's policy as written strictly prohibits certain communication platforms, but that the firm actually knows that certain employees have a business need to use an unapproved platform and actually do use that unapproved platform. So perhaps that policy as written actually just doesn't make sense, and perhaps exceptions are appropriate. And where exceptions are granted, firms should really be thinking about what additional compliance guardrails can be put in place to make sure that any communications that are being utilized through those accepted channels, or I guess uh, channels that are accepted through that policy exemption, are accessible, preserved, and part of the firm's books and records. And those guardrails can include things like periodic inspection and capture of the communications, and confirming that the platform or device 
that is not set to delete messages in the kind of interim and in the intervening periods between those periodic reviews. And then I think the last step is to basically work on heightened employee awareness of the risks associated with use of off-channel communications. For example, firms can send out periodic compliance reminders just so the issue is always at the top of employees' minds. They can conduct training. They can require employees to certify compliance with the firm's policies and procedure. And then they can conduct electronic surveillance looking for indicators of unauthorized communications. And then, you know, to the extent that the firms are identifying um, employee violations of their policies, they should have a thoughtful approach for dealing with those violations, particularly uh, where they find employees that have repeat violations. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Again, thank you for all of that, for all of that insight. I, you know, the I, I, in reading some of the orders, even of the <clears throat> case that was brought last fall that, that really, you know, generated so much of this buzz, uh, you know, there, there was recidivism there, uh, certainly where issues have been found and nothing was really done. In addition, you also talked about, you know, where, where there's going to be certain business practices that that people know it's like as part of the services they're providing, it's almost expected that, that there's going to be a certain level of communication there that might be happening over a particular app or over text messaging, right? It's just better for the firm to look, let's go ahead and figure out how we're going to be able to do this correctly rather than trying to navigate around it and have a policy in place that, as you indicate, really isn't going to carry much meaning. So that's that's wonderful insight. Thank you. You know, for many of our listeners, and obviously we continue to see the private fund space grow and grow and grow and grow. And certainly the attention from the SEC follows suit, I think, in a lot of ways with some of the rule proposals from this year, Form PF, just the gen, uh, the, the more general private fund rule proposals. Certainly you're seeing Chair, Chair Gensler generally continue to make this an area of focus. You know, as it relates to private funds, wh where have you seen some of the examinations from the SEC kind of focusing there? Exams is, um, Patrick, they are continuing to examine private fund advisors, frankly, on a really wide range of topics that are too long to run through without putting your um, audience to sleep. <laughs> so I think I think instead of doing that, uh, which is counterproductive to, to your goal here and mine, um, <laughs> I'll just go through a, a couple of examples. First, the SEC is uh, continuing to examine private fund advisors, their treatment of fees and expenses, and, and that includes expense allocation, both between and among funds, as well as between funds and the manager. And often that's with a particular focus on co-investments. Um, examiners are also looking at disclosure and handling of internally generated expenses charged to the funds, as well as fees paid to affiliates of the advisor. I think the other area where I will I will you know provide a little bit of context is the focus on custody rule compliance by private fund advisors. Um, the SEC, as you may have seen, recently conducted an investigation 
Um, it was a sweep uh, on this issue, and that actually stemmed from an examination referral. And uh, really quickly, for those that don't really kind of, they've not heard the term sweep, uh, a sweep is an exam or an investigation that's focused on more than one firm on a particular topic. And so that enforcement sweep related to the custody rule, it ended up in, um, it ended up with the SEC charging nine private fund advisors for custody audit failures and specifically for doing one of three things or multiple of three things. The first is failing to have audits performed. The second is failing to timely de deliver audited financials um, to investors. And then the third was failing to promptly amend their ADV to reflect that the firm had received audited financials after the initial EDB had been filed, indicating that the audited financials hadn't been received. So that, I, I guess that's a long way of saying that um, examinations is focused on the custody rule. And this is an example where findings in exams um, were referred to enforcement and resulted in a you know, significant number of private fund advisors being charged. And then I think in, in addition to those two topics, um, exams also focuses on allocation of opportunities, side-by-side -side investing, and that includes with registered funds or managed accounts. They're continuing to focus on continuation funds and advisor-led secondary transactions, and they're focusing on insider trading policies and procedures for private fund advisors with a particularized focus on firms that you know utilize expert network calls or have internal personnel that sit on company boards or even that have investors that they consider to be value-add investors. In other words, investors that sit on company boards as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, those are those are great points. And yeah, I mean, on the allocation of opportunities between clients and LPs or clients proprietary funds and then the side-by-side -side investing, you know, I mean, those private fund risk alerts that came out in 2020 and then again earlier this year in 2022, they do a good job of, of highlighting a lot of those conflicts of interest and other folks that, you know, if you're a private fund advisor, you may not have had a need, you know, previously to really dig into those topics specifically, but that you absolutely need to make sure to go in and, and address and make sure you've got good protocols set up to help identify and deal with those conflicts of interest whenever whenever they arise. On a different type of fund side of the house, um, we've seen quite a bit of uh, rule changes in the mutual fund and registered investment uh, company space. You know, I, I think I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts, how you're seeing the SEC in their examinations deal with some of those new new rule changes, uh, uh, you know, potentially, and then also just kind of generally what you're seeing in exams for um, advisors managing mutual funds and, and for mutual fund companies. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. I mean, I don't think the SEC is yet yet baking in the proposed rules into examinations because they're not they're not final yet, and they certainly haven't gone effective or compliant, you know, gone into their compliance states. But I certainly think there is an overlap in the issues that the SEC is focused on with respect to rulemaking and what examinations is doing and, and focusing on. And yes, I will um, agree with you. The SEC rulemaking agenda in the space has been truly breathtaking. You know, with respect to examinations of registered fund advisors, 
think what we've seen is recent exams focusing on topics that, again, this is an area where if I if I really enumerated all of them, um, it would put your audience to sleep. So just taking off a few, they include things like, you know, prohibited or re regulated affiliated transactions, compliance with rules governing valuation and derivatives, board governance, composition, meeting and record meetings and record keeping, securities lending, that's a big topic right now, market timing and late trading, as well as compliance with any applicable exemptive orders. Gotcha. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I I suppose we could probably do an entire an entire episode. Maybe that's an idea for a future episode. Maybe I, maybe I do a future uh, an episode you know, specifically on some of the rule proposals out there in the mutual fund space. But no, I appreciate that kind of high level background there, and and certainly for any of our listeners, uh, compliance officers, legal practitioners that are in the mutual fund space, definitely some some good insight there on on things to be on the lookout for. You know, another thing that I think has been in the news of late, in addition to several of the other areas we've talked about today, one of those other burning compliance topics, at least I know with a, a lot of advisors that, that we work with, is the, the new marketing rules, right? So we finally had the compliance date. It finally came after, you know, 18 months of runway uh, from the SEC. And, uh, you know, I I know that there were advisors that were very eager to kind of take on some of the new benefits of the rule, like use of testimonials and endorsements and stuff like that. But obviously, that comes with a price for them because they had to adopt fully the new rule and all of the related performance related stuff that's in there. Well, now everybody's in the same boat, right? Now everybody's regardless of whether you wanted to or not, you need to be in compliance now. And so I guess question for you, have exams um, started where they're really digging into this new rule? Are we hearing anything about what those you know inquiries may look like? you know and, and then I guess kind of generally, what would you expect the SEC really to be looking for on that front during an examination? Yeah. So um, what the SEC has really been doing on the exam front is it starts really with the risk alert that the exams published. So just a few weeks before the compliance date, the SEC issued an exams risk alert stating that once the compliance date hit, exams would, you know, would be commencing um, and conducting uh, examinations related to compliance with the new marketing rule. That risk alert stated that examinations were going to focus on marketing rule policies and procedures, whether advisors have a reasonable basis for believing they will be able to substantiate material statements of facts in their advertisements, whether advisors are in compliance with performance advertising requirements, as well as the books and records requirements. So the SEC announced right before the compliance date that they were going to be commencing examinations. And I'll just note that this feels a lot like the approach the SEC took in 2020 with respect to regulation best interest, which was the new rule that came out in 2019, adopting a, a new standard of care for broker-dealers. And, and they seem to be using the same playbook. So for Reg BI, shortly before the compliance date for that rule, the SEC, again, published a risk alert stating that exams 
would commence examinations and identifying the topics that registrants could expect to be covered during those exams. And as promised there, the SEC did promptly commence examinations on that new rule. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because, uh, again, kind of anecdotally, uh, we we have heard that the exam staff really, you know, immediately after the compliance date with the rule began sending out, in fact, new kind of inquiries you know, the, 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 regardless of how long the time frame was from November 4th to when the inquiry was sent, you know, that, that they were they were sending those out in a way where it was going to ask them, OK, well, what can, they wanted to see the new marketing materials that had come out and if any had come out in that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's right. Um, I've seen a similar request um, that came out shortly after after the compliance date, asking that exact same question. So that's that's what we're seeing as well. Got it. You know, I I do think <laughs> with regard to the new SEC marketing rule, while of course everybody hopefully by this point right has done a good job to build in the right policies and procedures into their program and they've looked at all their materials and they've made necessary adjustments to disclosures. But I guess I, I would say, you know, I would imagine that there are others out there that may have thought, well, you know what, I, all I need to do is just get ready for the rule um, and make sure that I've got things in place. But, you know, uh, compliance can sometimes feel like a living, breathing thing. What would be what would be some items, some best practices uh, that you might share for, you know, compliance with the new marketing rule? Right. If we were to say maybe practicing good marketing rule hygiene, what are what, what are some things firms can be doing post uh, the compliance date November 4th for the firms? Well, well, I think the example that you just gave lends itself to some really good lessons, right? The example of the exam request um, that we have both uh, seen samples of that's been floating around. That request that's been showing up during the course of existing examinations is focused not just on the new marketing materials and whether they are compliant with the new marketing rule, but also it's asking for prior pre-compliance state marketing materials. I expect the SEC is looking to see whether the old non-compliant materials have been retired, sunsetted, um, and are whether they're, you know, in fact, no longer in use. So I think firms can really take this opportunity to check that retired materials are no are no longer being used and they've been properly and effectively retired um, and that nobody's inadvertently using them, especially in large, large organizations. And they can also do things like checking the firm's website to make sure it's been scrubbed of any updated materials. And of course, the firm should keep their eye out for any further risk alerts describing deficiencies identified during the course of these exams and using that as a sort of checklist against their own practices. You know, you, you said a couple of things in there that I think are really, really important to highlight and, and spark a, a couple uh, kind of comments in, in my head. One is that is such a great insight that, you know, if you are a firm, one of the things the SEC would do if they came in to do an examination is they're going to want to look to see 
okay, look, yeah, you changed your policies and procedures. That's great. You tell me that you're doing all these things. Show me your marketing pre-November 4. Show me your marketing post-November 4. And if there's things, obviously, in the pre-November 4 marketing materials that now under the new SEC marketing rule either would have changed or maybe they're now prohibited or, you know, some other uh, type of uh, they might need a new disclosure, right? Like they're going to need to see that change or else they're going to say, this is all lip service, right? You're just trying to say that you did these things, but you didn't actually do that. So again, kind of best practice for a lot of firms out there. Make sure you do that. Were you going to add something to that? No. Okay. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely say, you know, firms, that's definitely, you know, one thing that, that you're really going to want to keep in mind as, as you are prepping for those types of materials. And and I think the other thing too, is that you're going to want to continue to look at your marketing materials and see how, um, how the, the way the SEC might be viewing these either through examinations that it's doing, or just more broadly, if additional guidance comes out, but make sure that you are constantly checking uh, back in. Uh, I mean, you, you want to keep revisiting all of those marketing materials to make sure that you feel like the content is not going to be violative of, of any of the specific provisions under the rule and that you've provided the proper disclosures there, right? Because I do think there are some areas that can be really tough to tackle as it relates to the new SEC marketing rule. And that, again, I think, it, um, you know, we're not exactly sure how the SEC is going to come out on a couple related issues there. So really good advice. Um, um, you know, thank you, Rana. I, I, I think maybe as we think about kind of closing up, I guess, today, one, one item I would just say generally, we've covered a lot of very technical areas today. And, and thank you for all of your insights. As we close, you know, what, what are some more you know, general tips, some kind of broad based kind of strategic level things that, that you would provide for firms that, again, you know, may, may be looking to, to better prepare themselves for, you know, any kind of upcoming examination. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. I think the most useful steps to be exam ready are to continually be reading exam risk alerts and enforcement actions and relevance to just continually keep abreast of topics of interest at the SEC. Those sources really can also serve as a type of checklist against a firm's existing practices. Firms can also try to get their hands on examples and examination request lists and use those either as a checklist or to conduct a mock examination. You know, ultimately, it is um, impossible for a firm to be able to predict 100% of the questions an exam staff will ask, but taking some of these steps can really eliminate surprises, or at least some surprises. And preparing for an exam can help identify areas for enhancement before exams actually shows up at your doorstep. Yeah, no, that's that's really, really great advice. And, um, you know, I, I know that... Uh, Look, for for some of our listeners who have been through exams, for some other of our listeners who maybe haven't gone through an exam yet, you know, just the just the thought of them can be a little bit intimidating, I think, for, for some folks. And so, uh, you know, the more prep that you do, I think, uh, generally speaking, uh, the more peace of mind you're going to have, the more um, uh, certainly prepared you're going to feel and hopefully give you the confidence to go into that exam knowing that, look, your firm's compliance program 
is in good shape. So, Ron, I really, really appreciate all of your wonderful insights today. Um, we typically do one quick fun question at the end of our podcast. And, you know, now that we are kind of through the holiday season here and, and as we get ready uh, for a brand new year in 2023, I was just kind of wondering, you know, what was your, uh, what, what is your kind of uh, favorite holiday tradition? Oh, you know, my favorite, I think my favorite holiday tradition is it's one that comes from my husband's side of the family, which is celebrating Christmas Eve Eve. And that is the day before Christmas Eve. And, and what we do is it, it helps us get really into the holiday spirit. We do things like play Muppets Christmas album on a continuous loop. We watch all of our favorite <laughs> holiday movies. Nice. Use for Santa. One of my kids still believes in Santa. So still a source of excitement. I will note that I have been operating under the belief for about the last 20 years that Christmas Eve Eve was made up by my husband's side of the family, only to have <laughs> actually recently learned that it actually came from the TV show Friends and apparently is a meme, <laughs> nice. which is a bit like learning that Santa does not actually exist. But that's fine. That's fine. But I think what matters yeah. are traditions, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The name, of, the name of the day matters a little bit less. So that's, yeah. that's, my, that's my favorite tradition. It's two days before Christmas. That is a wonderful tradition. And, um, and thank you for sharing that. That's a lot of fun. Um, well, again, Rana, thank you so, so much uh, for being generous with your time. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your weekend and weekend and uh, look forward to having you back on the show here at some point down the road. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. It's been a lot of fun. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guest, Rana Esmaili, for coming on today's show to share her invaluable insights on how firms can best prepare for a potential examination from the SEC. Please join us again next time on Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at ComplianceBot. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 